When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. This is the Christmas special of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove, joined as always by John Gibson, and we're going to bring some festive cheer in what has been a very uh, turbulent year on off the pitch in society. But we're not going to focus on that. No, we're going to focus on Christmas and the festive period, the calendar, yeah. which football fans always look forward to, and that run of games. Back in the old days, in the snow. Yeah, often, often, very often. More yeah. recently, not. Uh, John, you've gone through and you've picked some fixtures. As you described to me, mostly games that ended on a high for Newcastle. Some that didn't. Yeah. But just before we get started, what does the festive calendar in terms of football fixtures mean to you as a supporter and a journalist? Oh, always been a wonderful, wonderful time of year. And I think it is for so many Newcastle fans. Uh, it's extra special, isn't it? You stuff yourself full of turkey and roast potatoes now, and then you've got it, and the boredom of playing games with the family or listening to the traditional stuff on telly, and you want to get out, whether it's Boxing Day, you want to get out and enjoy the football, and it has more of a tingle, and there's that feeling on the terraces, and uh, the game I was going to start with was none more so than that, remembering it. It was going back to 1974 and that was the only season, you might remember, where Carlisle United, of all clubs, were in the top flight of English football. They only spent the one season up in the top flight. It was season 1974. So a derby match at the Christmas time with Newcastle United at Carlisle, Brunton Park, an old type football ground with all the atmosphere that has all the Newcastle fans through the Tyne Valley uh, up to, to Carlisle, thousands of them uh, going up for a game. And there was extra excitement to the whole game because Newcastle had just signed two new players and you know how they're always welcomed by the fans. Um, we just signed Tommy Craig and Jeff Nulty. Um, and they'd had... Just a couple of days before, and they'd had the medicals on a match day when we were playing Leeds United down at St James's Park, which was a fixture before Leeds disappeared off the calendar in recent years, which, which always seemed to be the Newcastle Christmas games against Leeds. We played Leeds at home. Both the boys went to St James's Park, had the medicals, got the medicals completed with half an hour of the Leeds game to go, watched Newcastle and then watched Newcastle play Leeds and then they travelled up to um, Brunton Park and Tommy Craig was a wonderful player he wasn't he didn't have any pace uh, he wasn't didn't get round the park but he had the most wonderful left foot um, was a real creator and he ran the show that day at Carlisle he was absolutely terrific uh, a memorable debut 
the goals were, as they always were at that time, Tudor and Supermax got the goals, and Supermax was a typical robustious run through and finish, as he always did. But the performance was Tommy Craig. Obviously, we always talk about Supermark and the strikers that went before him, the great strikers that came after him. Mm. But John Tudor, you know, he didn't oh. often know where the net was. Underrated, uh, very underrated, but not by Malcolm McDonald, who always said he was the best. Uh, the best at Newcastle, better than Alan Gowling, who he played with in 76. Um, and Newcastle fans, he was, he was nicknamed King Tudor for obvious reasons. Uh, a brave, brave finisher, wonderful in the air, brave finisher, scored a lot of goals. If he was in, this, in the side today, he'd be a superstar in his own right. But when you're playing at the shoulder of Malcolm McDonald, you are the number two striker. There's absolutely no question. It was like if you played at the shoulder of Shearer, there was only one number one. But Tudor was, was quite exceptional. Um, and Supermac always said, yeah, I'm the, the glory man, the man that gets every, all the headlines, but I'm only as good as the guy that feeds me. And ask Callum Wilson today, he would say exactly the same. I need feeding. You know, you make the bullets and I'll fire them. And it used to be Terry Hibbert at Newcastle for Supermac. It then became Tommy Craig after that. And uh, Tommy was the, the, the nicest lad you could wish to meet. He went on, as you probably realise, to skip a Newcastle at Wembley in the League Cup final of 76. But that was only because Jeff Nulty, who signed for him on the same day, uh, was injured. Uh, and Jeff was his big mate, the room together whenever Newcastle played away. And Nulty, we went up to Bolton in the FA Cup uh, bef just before Wembley. And Nulty went up for a, a corner. And Barry Siddle, who was the old Sunderland goalkeeper who was in goal, went to punch the ball and just went straight through it and punched Nulty flush on the jaw, smashed it into about 600 pieces. I think he had his Sunday lunch through a straw that, that weekend um, and there was no way he was going to make the cup final so Tommy Craig actually went out and skipped us at Wembley. Um, it was a shame for Tommy because one of the nicest lads you could wish to meet but he got caught up tremendously in the politics of St James's Park. The politics that came after the 74 FA Cup final around 76. The politics that were sparked by Gordon Lee coming as manager, and then when Lee left, Dickie Dennis. Um, Newcastle as a camp, which had all been together during the Joe Harvey years, split hugely in the dressing room when Lee was there, and certainly when the players propelled Dickie Dennis into the job. There was the pro-Lee clique of the uh, Gowling and um, Mickey Burns and a few of the others, and Tommy got sucked into that, and there was the other brigade, which was Super Mac um, and the old school. And he got sucked into that to such an extent, he was uncomfortable with it, that he actually left Newcastle uh, and went off to Aston Villa. And he said that Tommy always said how much he regretted that, uh, that move. It didn't work out for him. He'd come back as a coach and had eight more years here as a coach to various managers. Um, and he always said that he, he wished he hadn't left the club and that while Glasgow Celtic were always his club in Scotland and he worked for them on the um, 
coaching side later, his Newcastle, his English club was always Newcastle United, not Sheffield Wednesday, not Aston Villa, other clubs he played for. Lovely, lovely man. But um, they always say if you can get off to a rousing start with the Newcastle fans, you're well made. Well then, go out at Christmas, have a debut, relatively close to home at Carlisle, absolutely run the show from top to bottom. You're made with the fans after that. And uh, and Tommy was, and bless him, he deserved it. He was quality. Not a bad start to life on Tyneside. To those watching on YouTube, you'll be admiring my festive jumper. John didn't quite get the memo, but we've got tinsel to go with it on the table. Um, just please remember to like and subscribe and thumbs up in the comments as well. To those listening, as usual, on our podcast, thank you very much, and we wish you all a Merry Christmas. Absolutely. Before your next game, John, I just want to ask what it's like covering Boxing Day um, for you because you always mention in, in the podcast that you are um, someone who likes to be social. So I imagine Christmas Day is quite a social occasion around yeah. your house. So as a journalist, back in the day in your heyday, when you knew you maybe had to travel God knows where, yeah. um, what, what was that like, getting that balance right? Well, I worked on it an awful lot over the <laughs> years, you know, and it got better as time went on. Um, I've always been a social animal, so it was never too much of a problem because I was always able with about a couple hours sleep uh, to be on top form the next day. Mind, by it got to about December the 28th, I crashed out for a couple of days. But uh, no, in, in those days, when you go back to the 70s and 80s, it was a very different culture now. Football, probably wrongly so, was in a huge culture of drinkers. Um, there was absolutely no question of that. And you went through everybody from... George Best in the old days, right away through to Tony Adams, a lot of the, the people at Newcastle United, Malcolm McDonald in his day, could sup for England as well as score goals for England. Um, and it, it was part of life. I think life was very different in those days. Um, and I think a lot of the top players played hard and worked hard. And the two seemed to go hand in hand. And... Um, it worked with the fans because the players were so much more part of the fans' life. They mixed together in nightclubs and mixed together in pubs. It's a bit different today. There's not quite that social intermingling as there was then. Um, and I must admit that I'm biased. I thought it was a very, very good time to be around Newcastle United um, because you could be pals with the people and the fans had access, ready access, almost nightly to all the Newcastle players. So it, it was a great time. It was when a great time. The second game you're going to cover, though, goes yeah. back beyond your journalist days. 1955. Yes, it does. I, I, at 1955, still a fan there, still going to watch Newcastle play at Auntie Grace's on the, on the little postage stamp television. Uh, before that, a match that even me at my ancient time, I've got it down here, would love to have seen before we go to 55, and I'm mentioning it in passing, 1933, even I, which will surprise you, Andrew, wasn't alive then. But, but the reason that would have been nice, can you imagine this? Uh, on Boxing Day, Newcastle went to Everton and won 7-3 at Everton. And on New Year's Day, following it, Liverpool, another Scousing side, come to St James's Park, and Newcastle won 9-2. Now, can you imagine winning 7-3 at Everton on one day and then on the new year you celebrate 9-3 with Liverpool? 
That must have been quite a time. I don't know if Newcastle even scored that many goals this season. Well, I was going to say, I don't think they probably have, as, as, as <laughs> they did in those two goals. Sorry, in Steve. Those, those two games. I mean, they let in five goals in those two games, but they scored seven and nine against Everton and Liverpool, which was quite something. But going back to 55, one of the things that I actually adore about this is it was a very unusual Christmas. We played back-to-back. We played Christmas Day and Boxing Day. And there were derbies with Sunderland. And we won them both now. Can you think of a better Christmas, if you're a jolly, than we'll play the Mackhams twice in two days and take maximum points? And it started off at Roker Park, where Newcastle played Sunderland, and the result was Sunderland won Newcastle 6. And then the day after, we were... Sorry, uh, I, the day after, we played at St James's Park and won 3-1. Now, that it doesn't get any better than that. The, um, the first game, the winning of the, the 6-1 was quite amazing. I've got the facts down here. Uh, because Sunderland at that time were doing exceptionally well in the league, which made it even more staggering. They weren't far behind the famous Busby Babes, Manchester United, the Busby Babes before Munich, bless them. Uh, they weren't far behind them. They were in sixth place, but only four points behind Manchester United. as the, And they had it two games in hand. So they were really in big time. Um, and Len Shackleton, the clown prince of soccer, the, the Played at Newcastle, scored six on his debut against Newport, was due back in the Sunderland side, so they were quite buoyant. This was going to be, you know, a result that was going to do them, you know, the world of good for getting up there. What we've got to remember, this was 1955, and Newcastle were no slouches because they'd won the Cup 51, 52, and they were going on that season to, uh, to won it, sorry, that season they'd already won it in 55, hmm. uh, the FA Cup. So the, the match down there, um, let, wait a minute, now who got the goals? Here we are, Jackie Milburn, what a surprise. Vic Keeble and Bill Curry, who were three centre forwards actually, mm. scored two apiece. Um, and they were absolutely humiliated, Sunderland. We were glory be. We've got a game the next day, incredibly, with such a short turnaround, Sunderland went out and bought a centre-forward before the return game, at Christmas. There's a lot of things that stand out there. We'll get onto that there, about the transfer coming in, but also just the fact that they played one game and then literally the day after they played another game. I mean, players these days complain about the quick oh, turnaround in two or three days. Absolutely. The only concession that was made is that it was Sunderland, so neither, neither side had a much travel, travel yeah. But nonetheless playing back-to-back -back like that. And when you think it meant you didn't have to travel, but didn't it obviously crank up the games? It was two derbies, for goodness sake. You know, it wasn't just playing whoever, like Carlisle, when and they were. I guess, given on the return game, given you've just been thumped 6-1, um, you are going for the title, that, some might say, gives the, the added advantage to Sunderland because they're going to want blood, they're going to want vengeance, and... You know, it's it's an interesting dynamic because yep. usually the a derby defeat will will you know be allowed to fester within for yeah. weeks, months yeah. before the return game, even well years, you know, as we are now, um, given Sunderland's predicament. But there, you've got literally oh. a day or so, and 
So that the the one for revenge is going to be absolutely burning. Oh, from Sunderland's point of view, they can wipe out the memory of the six one almost immediately mm. if they get a result at St James's Park. From Newcastle's point of view, they haven't even had time to celebrate a six one and savour it before they're playing them again. And for Sunderland to come up out of the blue and sign a centre forward, you know, the glamour position, it was an England Bay international called Bill Holden that had signed for Sunderland and they arrived at St James's Park with Holden to make his debut. And what's more, you made an immediate impact by scoring and putting Sunderland ahead. So all of a sudden, the whole dynamic of the six ones changed. Apart from the fact that in the second half, Newcastle uh, came back with goals from Keeble, Milburn and Len White. Again, three centre-forwards, uh, as we know them. Um, and three very different players. Milburn was Wall Jackie, end of conversation. Everybody knows all about him. Um, Len White was always said, he was dinky, a small guy, a bit like Aguero in stocky and not too tall. But all the fans of that era will tell you he was the best centre forward never to get an England cap. He played for the Football League, which was um, in those days the Football League, Scottish League, Irish League, played interleague matches. And he played for the Football League and scored a hat-trick for the Football League, but never got in the England side. Um, and Keeble was totally the other way. He was nicknamed the Camel because he ran as if he had a hump on his back or a sack of coals. Um, because he was stooping, his ability on the floor, bless him, and he become a very good friend of mine and was the last of the 50s players to die when he died not so long ago, but his feet were just made for standing on, um, not for kicking a football, but in the air, he was the best he'd ever seen. You mentioned there, you know, neither side had to travel very far. Wouldn't it be nice, um, well, in my opinion, what I don't know about yourself, but wouldn't it be nice that Newcastle United fans didn't have to always travel away on Boxing Day, which has tended to be the rule yeah. um, in recent years. It would be nice if they could just be given their nearest, uh, you know, their nearest team, which at the moment would be, I think, Leeds or Burnley. Yes, very prob close. Probably the, the Leeds was um, the traditional game yeah. we got. So I mean, it would be nice that they don't have to travel all the way down to Manchester or wherever. Yeah, I, I forget who they've got. I think they've got Man City. Am I right about that? I think they've got Man City on Boxing Day. That's something to celebrate. Yes. 8 p.m. kickoff. So again, that's a late. I mean, they'll not be there because of the, the COVID yeah. and such. But if, if it wasn't for the restrictions, they'd be down there. It's a long way to travel on Boxing Day yeah, and absolutely. trains and what have you. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if the FA, the Premier League, just said, you know what, we'll make sure everyone plays everyone in a close proximity. I mean, we often in the old days got Sunderland or Leeds. Hmm. Uh, of course. What a shame, we've missed them in recent years as they've both gone down. I mean, Leeds did a Sunderland, I think, went down to the third tier at one mm. stage. Um, Leeds are back with us this season, um, but Sunderland aren't, and we don't know yet when they will be back up. But I hope it's soon, because it's uh, we ah. are owed six points per yeah. season I missed the from Darby's. Sunderland. I missed the derbies, but I didn't miss them when they ended because <laughs> we'd, we'd lost about four on the trot or something, Andrew, when, when they ended with Sunderland mm. going down. But, I mean, just think of that as a Christmas present. Newcastle v Sunderland, Newcastle 9, Sunderland 2, over, over two days. I'd uh, stay with you, wouldn't it? I mean, that is a decent old time, but um, Sunderland, as I say, had a good side at that time. They were right up 
challenging the Busby Babes, but Newcastle were a side that could lift the game at that stage. You know, they'd had the three years, uh, the three cup wins in five years. They had the exceptional players. We were just coming to the end of the glory time and of Milburn's glory time with the mid-50s. But um, special times. Was that Jackie Milburn's last derby or did he have a couple more in him? I, I think he, he played after that. But um, not by the time we got the 55 Cup final, that was almost his swan song of him and his pomp. Um, because if you remember, the manager in 55 actually tried to drop him for the mm. final, Doug Livingston, which was an absolute disaster. Um, but that was just about him ready to, to say goodbye. And he did the unusual thing and went over to Linfield in Northern Ireland. These days, nobody goes from a top player in England over to Northern Ireland. But he didn't want to play for another club in England. He was a Newcastle United man, so that suited him fine. Unbelievably, and this would be a quiz question, if I said to you, did Jackie Milburn ever play in the what is the Champions League now, the European Cup, and you would say no because Newcastle never did then. But the answer is yes. He played in the European Cup with Linfield. Well, there you have it. That's where you're going to get that answer from should you ever be asked it. Just quickly back to those watching on YouTube. If you look above John's uh, John's head, you can see our logo. Um, and do you know what? I'm quite impressed with it. It was designed by our graphic designer, uh, Doug Young. Um, we're here in the lane head and right and he also designed the logo for that and I think Gibbo you're, you're quite happy with your logo aren't you? I think it's good I think I was thinking of trying to hold that in front of my face because <laughs> it would be would be easier for the punters to listen to and watch but uh, yeah I think it's great I think it's absolutely great now I'm a bit like uh, Johnson in ACDC I can't take my cap off because that's a Gibbo corner so. well it's funny you should mention that and just a side tangent my, my father actually went out last week and bought a semi-identical hat to the one you're wearing. So he's either he's either modelling himself. He's put, just put it on there. He's either modelling himself <laughs> on yourself or Brian Johnson. We'll leave that up to debate. Um, well, I, I know who I would like it to be, but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with John. He's a top man, a top Geordie, and a Newcastle United fan. Uh, let's get on to the next game, and it is a, it's another one against Sunderland, 1967. It is, it is, and the the difference for me in '55, I was a fan. Still at school and starry-eyed about Warjacking my superhero. By the time this one came along, I was actually in the press box at Walker Park for the game. Um, and what I loved about it, it was a comeback. It was the great comeback. It was Sunderland 3, Newcastle 3. Um, and you would say, well, is that a great memory? Well, yes, as it turned out, it was. Because um, we were... Uh, 3-1 down, believe it or not, with only 20 minutes to go. And it looked pretty well nailed on to be a bad time. And um, I always remember, I was in the front row of the press box at the old Walker Park. And right down beneath us is a paddock, which was absolutely packed with Sunderland fans. And naturally, they could spot me in the front row on the phone uh, because you were live in those days to the pink doing a running report all day and they could see me on the phone and of course they all turned round and taunted me you know the jolly and give me dogs abuse uh, <laughs> and I just kept going kept going kept going we we had scored a, 
penalties through Ollie Burton and um, we got back in the game with a, when we got a second penalty and Ollie Burton kept his nerve. Second penalties are much more difficult than the first penalty because where do you put him? Is the goalkeeper going to guess? Etc. Etc. But we got back to 3 2. Uh, now we were throwing everything at them and they decided to had a batten down the hatches and weather it out, they'd won the game. Um, now they got a warning at what was coming their way because we got a corner and um, naturally in those days all the Sunderland defence wears Wynn Davies wonderful wonderful header of the ball a bit like Vic Keeble his strength was in the air not so good on the deck uh, so they were looking for Wynn Davies big Nat McNamee went up um, for, the, for the corner over it came he cleared out the whole penalty area and everybody else just ran completely through them had a, a heck of a in effort just wide danger avoided relief from Sunderland's point of view uh, but still to come was another corner uh, and this time when the ball come Martin and me was left unmarked again everybody was cluttered round Davies the same thing happened just think of some in the 55 cup final against Man City everybody are talking about how good Vic Keeble was all the Man City players scored in 40-odd seconds, went round Vic Keeble, Jackie Milburn left on his own, headed the goal in, and it was more or less the same here. They'd, everybody was round Win Davies, McNamee comes in. He looked like Desperate Dan. I mean, he looked as if he could, he could twist crowbars in his teeth. He was absolutely fearsome. And he come powering in at full pelt, headed the ball into net, his impetus took him further on and he swung, he swung off the crossbar, two hands off the crossbar, looking like the drunken sailor on the rigging, you know. Of the, and it was all our fans were behind that goal at the full end, and the whole place erupted. And I'm on the phone back to the pink, but I covered up the mouthpiece and, and just said to the Sunderland fans who'd been baiting me, all right, boys? everything okay and boom end of the game 3-3 three, three, and then immediately stay on the line and I'm doing a report for the Sunday Sun that's the way it worked in those days and as I'm doing the report everybody filed out of the paddock all the Sunderland fans and when they'd all left there was two guys I'm still on the phone there was two guys left in the paddock and they turned round faced me put their thumbs up unzipped that top and underneath they had a black and white striped shirts on they'd, they'd zipped up because they had to go in the paddock with all the Sunderland fans but they unzipped that black and white striped shirt you all right Gibbo wonderful wonderful <laughs> moments and really that was that was John McNamee at his very best and um, he lived on that rep reputation of being a hard hard man that basically because he was He'd had to get out of Scotland because the Scottish referees, he would have ended up being signed out, banned signed out. The Scottish referees had his number and were looking for him and were nailing him. I mean, he actually got done by the referees for slapping his own goalkeeper who said something that they were disputing who should have cleared the, this cross, McNamee or the keeper. 
in, in John Chindy's own keeper. Uh, that that was him. He had huge amount of run-ins. Whenever we played Leeds, used to put McNamee in the Newcastle side for his battles with big Jack Charlton. You can imagine how thunderous they were because Jack didn't give an inch and neither, neither did McNamee. I bet Jack respected that as well. I bet Jack respected someone who gave totally. him a good, good hiding. Totally. Um, and they respected each other mm. because they were... It, they saw it as a man's game and they played that way. Um, and they respected each other. Always, <laughs> I always remember, you know, George Best was the best aptly named and um, he could skin anybody he had the ability you know when he was in his pump at Manchester United not sadly once he was on the slippery slope and I always remember he played against um, Newcastle and he went shimmying past McNamee twice and um, as he did with other people and when he went he come past him again, having done the run and, and had his shot. McNamee said to you, hey, George, he said, if you want to walk home on your legs, don't ever do that anywhere near me again. So even George, who could skin anybody, decided to go and play on the other side of the pitch because it was much easier. And that was McNamee. His reputation was absolutely fearsome. Heart the size of a frying pan and... Um, did a terrific job for Newcastle. He was bought by Joe Harvey when the one time Joe might have gone down, you know. He, he, Joe had a record of X number of years at Newcastle. No minuses. Everything was winning. He had one season when it looked as if he might go down and he gambled hugely. He sold Newcastle's best, best player, who was Alan Suddick, the local boy. Genius, clever. Well, sold him for 60 grand, which was decent money in those days, and bought three players for that 60 grand, which was McNamee, Tommy Robson, who just died recently, bless him, and um, Dave Elliott. And that courage in doing that kept Newcastle up that season, and within a couple of years they'd qualified for Europe uh, through the Fairs Cup and won it, of course. Um, and McNamee come to Newcastle as part of that. Just before we get on to the next game, you mentioned there you calling up and giving your match report. Just for our younger listeners, do you want to just explain a bit about what was going on there? Because obviously today we're on laptops and we yes. send it back over the internet and that it's dealt print-wise that way. But just briefly, just explain what you mean by you were, you were calling up and, and giving you a report over yeah, the phone. Yeah, it was very, very different in those days to the way it is now. New technology didn't exist. The uh, laptops and... Um, didn't exist at all and we had a, a the football pink came out because there wasn't instant stuff there wasn't local radio where you could listen to the match every match that Newcastle United played um, television didn't cover every game it covered the, the match of the day games etc and maybe Tang Tees would have a, a campaign because it was a derby match uh, but they didn't cover everything um, so we produced I went on the phone at quarter three before match to give them the intro and the teams and I never went off the phone again at half time and went on to begin the second off and never wrote a word, just I'd lived into the phone. There was a guy in the office with a pair of, of, of earphones on, on a typewriter. That's how quick he had to be at taking it down and he took down the way I'm speaking now, my stuff which was then given to the subs 
the sub and putting the paper. Um, an amazing thing, and I've mentioned this before, is that Leeds United, at it, it, that time, were the best side in the country. Um, they won the championship around the time we won the European First Cup. They won the First Division Championship. It was the Don Revy era with Big Jack and all the wonderful players, Johnny Giles, Billy Bremner, Cl Alan Cl Clark, the centre-forward, um, all the great players, Lorimer. Um, but they didn't have any phones in the press box. Can you believe they were the champions of England? They didn't have any phones in the press box. So I had to actually write my match report out longhand, give it to a little lad who was getting sixpence for, for running copy on his day off, who rushed downstairs into the press box onto an open line phone and read my stuff out to the office, come up, I had the next sheet ready by then. It was an absolute nightmare. When the fixtures come out, the first thing I did was look for when we played Leeds and hope we're playing them on a Wednesday night. Because if it was a sad day, I had the pink to take care of. That just sounds absolutely Different bizarre. <laughs> and as I say, at the final whistle, having done all that for a pink, I went straight into a report for the Sunday Sun, which is what I was doing when the Newcastle fans showed the hand at, at Walker Park. Mm. But <laughs> great fun. Um, and there was some excitement of flying by the city of pants, you know. There was there was something daredevil about it. Was it all going to go pear-shaped where you're going to manage it? It had a, a touch of excitement about mm. it and, and loved every minute of it. Loved every minute. Very different a day, although, I mean, you talk about the lack of um, resources there at Leeds. I mean, the Wi-Fi at Newcastle United and other grounds leave a lot to be desired yep. because it's, uh, it's not always easy to get a, a connection sometimes which can... I definitely obstruct you in your in your writing duties, although there's not always a, a lot of positive things to write about. But moving on yep. to the next game, we have Middlesbrough, so another local derby. Yep. Uh, we've 1964-65 season. Yep. What stands out about that one? Well, first and foremost, that was the season when Joe Harvey won the second division championship, the title, with the first of the three sides he built. He built that side, the 69 first cup side and the 74 FA Cup final side. This was his first side. And Newcastle had been in the, the depths of despair. They're far a lot worse off than they are now when Joe came to the club and he had rebuilt them absolutely ruthlessly. Um, and on Boxing Day of that year, on the way to the title, uh, we won 2-0 at Borough with Dave Hilly scoring and Nurse own goal. He was a central defender there. And on the 28th of December in the return, up here we beat Borough 2-1 and Hilly scored both the goals. 54,750. You wow. know, we, we think of Newcastle today with 50,000. Wonderful. They, they were getting gates then in mm. exactly the same. This was for a second division derby as well, we've got to remember, against Middlesbrough. 54,000. And um, the interesting thing was Dave Hilly scored down there on Boxing Day and he scored in the return. And what was exceptional about that was Dave Hilly was really a creator. He was a, what you would call, or you used to call in those days, a Tanner ball player. Now that sounds insulting, but it wasn't. It meant you had so much movement you could play on a Tanner. You were that, you had the quick shimmy, you could get away from somebody on a Tanner, a sixpence as it was in those days. 
And Dave Hilly, who was a high strutter, lifted his feet high. He seemed to glide over the top. He, he never ran in mud. Everybody else was up to his ankles in mud. He tiptoed over the top of the surface. Looked a delicate player, wonderful player, uh, creative player. And he actually finished that season second top goal scorer to Ron McGarry, the famous uh, have goals, will travel, Ron McGarry. And um, he must have made, Dave, as many goals as he scored for Newcastle. Um, wonderful guy. When it was all over, his playing career, he came back and lived in Newcastle and um, became a school teacher. Uh, and a lot, a lot of Newcastle fans reminisce about him at John Molly School in Newcastle. Oh, he was our PE teacher, what a great guy. Took them for football and, of course, mesmerised them, whatever age he was, with his ability, because his natural ability, his legs went, but his natural ability mm. to control the ball never left him. And still now, and he's a fair old age now as our David, but he's still living up in Gosforth uh, and is still with us and is still instantly recognisable. He kept himself very fit, instantly recognisable from the guy he was with us. And um, he'd made his name with Third Lanark, uh, where Bobby Mitchell come from, a club that's now well defunct in Scotland. And he went on, after he left Newcastle, he went to Nottingham Forest and he was just there for a season and he loved to recall with me that season with Forrest because Slim Jim, who was Jim Baxter, who uh, had come down, made his name in Glasgow Rangers, an absolute hero to um, Rangers fans in Scotland. And by the way, when we talked about people at Christmas time liking to celebrate, nobody celebrated like Jim Baxter, man. but his Christmas was every day. He celebrated every day. He could, there was more liquid inside Jim than there is flowing down the time. Uh, he was one of the legendary drinkers of all, of all time. Uh, and a legendary player who rather blew up a little bit early. And it might have had something to do with the vast quantities of um, hard liquor that the, the lad managed to take aboard. And when he signed, he was now well past his best. He was past his best when he was at Sunderland. His best was at Rangers. Um, but Dave Hilly, always remember telling me that the, the chairman of Forest was a bloke called Tony Wood, and he wanted to revive Forest by signing a superstar personality to give to the, the crowd. And he was so determined to do that on his watch that he was going to pay the transfer fee out of his own pocket, which was £100,000, which in those days was a fair amount of dough. And so... He wanted a personality and he decided Jim Baxter would be the lad. Slim Jim, the guy that destroyed England at Wembley, etc., etc. Now, John Carey, the, his manager, who was the famous player, man knew, didn't want anything to do with Slim Jim at all because he knew that the baggage he, he was going to take on with Jim Baxter, you had to put a truck on the back of Jim Baxter's car for him to put all the baggage in that he was bringing with him. Uh, because he was that sort of player. But anyway, he was signed, and Baxter got um, £4,000 in his own back pocket for signing on, top, top wages, and was put up in it to live in a luxury hotel. Fatal. With a bar downstairs, room service, and a nightclub just up the street. 
Dave Illy, who had just joined Forest, was in a boarding house. Now, Dave Illy was a jock, Baxter was a jock, so they naturally bonded straight away down there. And Jim Baxter went in and saw the chairman and said, hey, my mate, Hilly, in a, in a boarding house, this is ridiculous. And he got him moved into this luxury hotel in the, in the street, in the room next to, to Bax. Now, as far as the club was concerned, Hilly's job was to ride shotgun on Baxter and keep him out of trouble. And as far as Baxter concerned, he was a maid to get into trouble with. So it was an eventful uh, time down there for Dave um, because, as he put it, uh, Jim was a party animal, was the way he put it. And he used to say, Tommy Kavanagh, the, the, the forest coach, who, if you remember, it was a Man United coach to Tommy Dock. And if you remember, was up at Newcastle for a short while mm. as a coach. You see, he used to try to run past uh, the players in the morning when they were doing a lap of the track before training. And he got knocked out by Jim Baxter's breath, breathing on him, <laughs> because the, the, the bottle of whiskey was still in the boot of the car, the empty bottle. Uh, but smashing times... A good, good player, Dave Hilly. He's gone down on record as Joe Harvey's first signing for Newcastle and bearing out in mind how epic um, uh, Harvey's signings were for Newcastle. That's not a bad accolade. And it's technically true. But as, as uh, Dave told me himself, it wasn't really. Because when Joe came, his transfer was already in the pipeline Stan Seymour, who was a wonderful record of going into Scotland and getting all the great players, Bobby Mitchell, Frank Brennan, everybody you can think of, had already done the deal for J for Hilly. Harvey was through the door, went as his first sign, but he was actually signed by, by Stan Seymour. But uh, he's remained a friend to today, uh, Dave Hilly, and underestimated in Newcastle's history, but not by people that actually saw him. Hmm. Before we go into the next game, which is one I'm the one I'm most interested in, uh, let's just talk about how the weather kind of affected the the Christmas and Boxing Day schedule. Because as we mentioned right at the start, there, you know, we're lucky if we see snow in December, and especially not to the high tights as it was during the sixties and seventies. Um, what was what? How did the weather affect the games? Because you know, I can imagine some of the pitches being in absolute horrible condition. Oh, I, I mean, absolutely ludicrous. Uh, Newcastle generally at that time tried all sorts of things to get games on. Um, first and foremost, the players were always involved in the physical part of clearing St. James's Park. All the players would go down and they would have to clear sometimes as much as four feet of snow off St. James's and stick it on the round the ground on the track. Uh, and that took a heck of a lot of doing um, and of course left a little bit of snow on the pitch which turned ice overnight uh, Newcastle then come up with ingenious ways of other ways of trying to get the games on they put a lot of burners on the pitch at one, at one stage to, to melt the snow which tend to flood the pitch. <laughs> and then the rest of the time, when the wingers run down the wing with a ball and got tackled, 
and fell over, his knees were absolutely ripped to pieces by all this uh, coke that was on the pitch from the burners, sort of thing. Like So, I mean, that didn't work. At one time, Charlie Mitten decided that putting cellophane wraps over the pitch, clearing the pitch, putting this, this wrap on so that any more snow would fall on top of it or would protect it and keep it warm underneath. And Bob Monker and that were the young lads at the time at St. James's Park. We had to clear the pitch and then put these cellophane down and put little rocks on the corner to hold it down. And so they come in the next morning and all this had blown off the pitch and was on the roof of the houses <laughs> around St. James's Park, dangling from the roof. Um, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> one, of the, one of the times when Newcastle played in the snow was when Len Shack was there. He was fleetingly with us before he went down to Sunderland and become a legend at Sunderland. Uh, but was famous when he played with us because he had he scored six goals on his home debut. Can you imagine that? We talk about what McQuinn did with four in a division down. He scored six on his debut. Newcastle's greatest win, they scored 13 against Newport County, which isn't the sort of game like Newcastle have just played Newport County, where one's in the top flight and the other's in the, the bottom division. They were in the same division, playing a league game. And uh, he scored six. He used to... He was... Jackie, when he first signed, just after the war, he was Jackie Milburn's apprentice down the pit national because they had to go down the pit so that they didn't get called up. Mm. Uh, so, and Jackie had a motorbike and Shaq used to get on the back and he used to drive down to training from the pit on a Tuesday and Thursday to train at St. James Park, stash the bike round the back because they weren't supposed to be on a bike and train. Anyway, they cleared the pitch this day totally and there was about six, about four foot of snow all the way around the track. It's St. James's Park. Newcastle were winning 1-0 in the last 10 minutes. So, every, and Shaq loved games, loved tricks, loved the audacity of football. Football was a challenge to him to do something different. So every time Shaq got the ball, because he didn't have ball boys in those days, every time Shaq got the ball, he flicked it with the outside of his foot over the four-foot wall of snow. So... It was a throw in the other team, but the player had to clamber over the four-foot wall to get the ball, clamber back over to take the throw in. And the refs in those days didn't bother to stop the watch and put extra time on. So every time the ball came to Shaq, he didn't try to find a man. He flicked the ball over the, <laughs> over the, over the wall. And it, I reckon he, he must have got rid of about eight minutes of the ten minutes were left doing that. That was the sort of guy he was. But um, there was... In those days, we just the fans just went and stood in the snow, and mm. they played in the most atrocious of conditions. Um, but after, but the whole of football was like that, Andrew. I mean, you know, by the, the time you got through the early months of a season, like August and September, you know, it was either a mud bath with with mud round your ankles, and you're trying to kick a heavy football in that. Uh, or it was frozen and rutted where you would turn an ankle, or it had three foot of snow on it. And they didn't play on the billiard pitches that they were they play now. I think everyone remembers the picture of Joe Harvey clearing the snow. That was in the big freeze um, of, I think, 63, 64 seasons. So that was a bit March, April, so a few months after the, the Christmas schedule. But just briefly on that picture, it's amazing to think that you've mentioned the players clearing the pitch, but the manager as well with a shovel. Totally. 
Oh, totally. Amazing. Um, that was their job, and that was part of their training. They cleared the pits, and it wasn't just the apprentices. As you say, the manager and the top stars of the day were out on the pitch in wellies and bobolats with huge shovels uh, shoveling snow off a pitch. And I tell you what, when you think of the acreage of a pitch, it take, and if there's about three foot of snow on it, it takes some moving. It mm. takes some moving. And, you know, talking about that period, I'd also like to, to mention, because we were just on about, you know, Newcastle beating Borough twice in the promotion team. Uh, when Hilly scored the goals, etc. That side was built on a half-back line, as it was called in those days, of Anderson, McGrath and Hailey. Uh, and the whole side was built on that. And everything about it was wrong, but turned out brilliantly right. Um, Anderson and Hailey couldn't stand each other. Could not stand each other. Ended up, wouldn't talk to each other. So McGrath in the middle, who was a complete um, comedian, one of the greatest early after-dinner speakers I've ever heard because he was funny, he was the go-between between Eilie and Anderson. Mm. Uh, now, I said to Stan afterwards, what was, you know, what was all that about? And when I got to know him later in years, and how did it come about? He said, well, Jim had been captain in Newcastle United. I arrived from Sunderland, where I'd been a legend, 400, 500 games, couple of England caps, Mackham's adored him. They bring him in, highly stripped of the captaincy, and it's given to Anderson. Jim didn't take too well to that. They were both also attacking halfbacks, where you want one sitting and one going. They both went, in when the first came, ignored each other and both went. They worked out a system where one stayed and one went. If one went, the other dropped in. But they didn't, they didn't talk to each other um, at all. But McGrath, who was a wonderful, wonderful player, um, was the go-between two of them. And I got on terrific with, with McGrath. And afterwards, I helped him negotiate when he went to Preston in a couple of other clubs. And I helped him get Newcastle kids who weren't going to make it at Newcastle. I was reporting on Newcastle at the time. I, uh, McGrath would phone me up and say, Gibbo, who's playing well up there? And I'd say, go and watch him. And he'd have him up. I, and I used to tap him. Jeff Wrightson, who played centre-half. I got him for McGrath. Ian Bogie was a wonderful... I'd always been said was going to be the second... Uh, Paul Gascoigne, isn't it awful when you're going to be the second somebody, the second George Best? No, you're not. That's a, a too much of a burden. But he, he, he bought him as well. But Anderson was intriguing because he was, he'd been so adored at Sunderland that you really felt he's got no chance at Newcastle. He's a le Sunderland legend. He come to Newcastle, he only played two seasons here. When he signed for Newcastle, his wife burst into tears and his dad stopped speaking to him for five weeks. Can you imagine that? I mean, that, that's just at home. That's without the fans of Sunderland calling you a traitor and of Newcastle saying, what's this Mackham doing coming here? That was his wife and his dad. But yet, by the first four months of gone of him being here, his dad was best friends with Joe Harvey and... Stan Anderson says the best two years of his playing career, and he captained 
Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough, how many players have done that? He captained all three northeast, top northeast clubs. He said that the best two years of his playing career was at Newcastle and by far the best manager he had was Joe Harvey. And he fell out with Alan Brown who was at Sunderland. He went down to Middlesbrough and the famous Rach Carter was manager. A grave disappointment, he called him. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, Ando, what is it about Joe Harvey that makes him a such a good manager? He said, I'll tell you. He said, we were playing at Cardiff, he said, and Joe come in, they were getting beat. Joe come in at half time, and Joe was very volatile when in that situation. And he, he said he come in, and he started murdering young Pop Robson. And Stan was captain, and, and he piped up, hey, wait a minute, boss, you know, this is a young lad. You know, it's not just Pop having a bad game. Have a go at us experienced players. Or so. Joe bit back, came over, got on, a, got on a train from Cardiff to London and then a train from London to Newcastle. That was some journey, wasn't it? Um, and Joe tried to speak to uh, Stan. Stan wouldn't have it because Stan, bless him, could sulk. He could sulk for England to start with. So he sat in icy silence all the way home. Uh, wouldn't speak to Joe. Went in on the Monday morning. Jimmy Green off the train as there. Goes over to Stan and says, Stan, the boss wants you in his office. And Stan said to me, he said, Oh, I thought, oh, dear me. Here we go. Joe's going to blister me for what happened down there. He said, and I went in and Joe said, How you doing, mate? Nice to see you. Look, he said, pull up a chair. He said, We'll, we'll have a pot of tea. He ordered a pot of tea. How's the missus? The kid's off to school all right. Uh, what are you thinking? Were you going to have a game of golf this weekend? So he talked to me about everything bar football. He said, and what he was actually saying was, look, football's a passionate game. We'll have our misunderstanding, but it doesn't matter. He says, and Joe was one of the cleverest managers at diffusing the situation. He said, and he never held a grudge. He would have a pop at you, but he would never hold a grudge. And the wonderful thing is, we had a great bunch of kids growing up at that time. Craig, Clark, Munker, Pop Robson, who all went on and were stars when we won the only European trophy. And they all talk about the influence Stan Anderson had on them. Um, and he was just in and out a short time. But, and the funny thing is, it, it almost just springs to mind that it happened the other way, you know. Our legend was Bob Munker, mm. who was our legend, who was a club legend and won everything. Went down to Sunderland, <coughs> signed for Sunderland from Newcastle, struggled to be accepted in the, by people like Jim Montgomery, the goalkeeper, and the fans. But then the second season was voted the player of the year and um, captained them to win in promotion. So... It can be done. Not every situation is like Lee Clark mm. and uh, other players never darken the door. It's a pretty old world. If you want to learn more about that <coughs> uh, second division winning side, there is a podcast with Ron McGarry. Um, just search uh, on our podcast channel. Really good sit down. It's about an hour long. He can talk nearly as long as Gibbo <laughs> can. Um, he's a very, very funny man. It was recorded last year. I really do recommend listening because he talks about Joe Harvey talks about Stan Anderson, talks about the battle that John's mentioned there between the defenders and how they didn't really like one another. And he just talks about his goal-scoring exploits. It's a really good listen, um, if I don't say so myself. On to this next game then. Leeds United, 
five nil. Yeah. There's a reason you've picked it, and it's not <laughs> it's not a happy reason, but it's certainly a very intriguing one. Yeah, well, first of all, it was my first Boxing Day actually reporting on Newcastle United. The first Boxing Day match reporting on Newcastle United. I'd come up from Fleet Street, I'd worked in Fleet Street, and didn't think I was ever going to come back to Newcastle because, quite stupidly, I thought all doctors want to go to Harley Street, all journals want to go to Fleet Street. I'd made Fleet Street at a very young age. That was going to be me. Um, and then all of a sudden, Applecart was completely turned upside down because somebody come on from the Chronicle and said, Gibbo, would you like to come back and follow Newcastle United? And I thought, would I? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, it was cheeky enough to, to, to chance me arm and say, well, of course, but um, only if I'm allowed to cover all the World Cup finals and the Olympic Games at the same time. And I Shy thought, Ben's getting out? Well, yeah, exactly. I thought they'll say, on your bike, pal. And I'd say, <laughs> oh, well, OK, I'll still come. Uh, but the, amazingly, they said, yeah, sure, yeah, we can do that. I said, oh, right, when's the next train? I'm on my way up. And I did. I, that was 66. My first job was covering the World Cup, for, which ended up with England winning it. And I covered all the World Cups and the Olympic Games, so every two years I was away. But this was my first my first Boxing Day game, um, and it was at Leeds, and we lost 5-0. And we'd already lost at home to Leeds 2-1 on Christmas Eve. Um, so it was a, a rotten old time. Leeds were, as I talked about, uh, a team to behold at that time, with all the great names in it. Um, it. At the time, Bobby Collins was one of the early big names of the, of, of the lead side, uh, and he had run the game at St James's Park, but he was missing through injury for the return of Denham Road, and it was Billy Brem there that took, can you imagine? You know, you, you, you're going to be without Collins, but the guy that's then going to lead the team is Billy Bremner, one of the greatest midfield dynamos and apt you hate to play against him because he's a he's got a tiger in his tank he's in your face he's aggressive but you off want him on your side because mm. he's a i hated him at the time because he was playing for leeds and he was playing for scotland and and that didn't endear me but i would half loved him to play for newcastle united um uh, he was made the the skipper and newcastle he gray cooper the tore newcastle to bits um, and really this established them to stay in the title race it told me what sort of um, gulf there was between the Newcastle side I'd come back to follow and this was a not a good Newcastle side at the time they'd come up with, with Joe but he was then having to build his second side having brought us up which was a side in 69 by 69 by 68 we were um, qualifying for Europe albeit only 10th but then in a season where we were going to win a European trophy so we were making rapid progress but it wasn't that rapid and um, ironic that Big Jack was part of that lead side and he was such a Newcastle United fan and had spent all his youth on the terraces with War Kid, who was Bobby, um, watching Jackie Milburn play for Newcastle United, who was in the family, of course. 
and Jack used to tell me, him and Bobby used to get the bus out of Ashington, down to the Haymarket, get off the bus at the Haymarket, walk round the corner to the fish and chip shop, where they would go in, they could sit in the fish and chip shop, and they would have fish and chips for lunch, walk round up to St James's Park, on the popular side, to watch War Jackie in Wonderman play for a great Newcastle side and score all the goals. They would come out after the game, not go home, go straight across the road at the um, Gallagher end, and New St James's Hall was standing there at that time. The metro station is there now, which was an old boxing arena. But every Saturday night, it had wrestling on. And, they, and Bobby and Jack would come out the football ground, go across, watch the wrestling, come out the wrestling about nine o'clock, get on the, the last bus to Ashington, and either their mom or dad would be waiting in the bus station for them coming out and take them home. And that was two of the greatest players, certainly I think Bobby Charlton, you can say the greatest uh, Englishman uh, of his generation. And Jack is such an underrated centre-half. He used to say, war kid's the best footballer in the country and I'm the best destroyer. He can play and I stop other people playing. And, and that was him and um, boy did we see it in those days so when Leeds hit, hit Newcastle for five what was your first thought <laughs> goodness me what have I done no because um, uh, following Newcastle is in your blood and it doesn't matter what the result is you, you talk to any Newcastle fan they'll complain like heck that Newcastle get beat five but to tell you what they'll be there the next week in mm. the thousands, they don't desert. And I didn't. I just thought we'd get better. And incredibly, I say incredibly because I keep because now this doesn't apply. I thought we'd get better, and incredibly we did. By '68, we'd qualified for Europe. By '69, we'd won Europe. By '74, we're in the FA Cup final. It got better. These days, it doesn't get better. But I tell you what. It doesn't get better. There's still 50,000 Geordies in the ground when there can be every home game. It's funny you mention that because um, for those on social media, there's a big hype about the We Are The Geordies film. Gibbo is in that. And I, yeah, spoke the fi- yep, the, um, yep. I spoke to the directors um, early on in December. You can find that podcast as well on our channel. And we, we spoke about you, John, um, and they said oh, he spoke for a long time, but you were only in here about 30 seconds or so. But the one thing that stood out was that you were asked, what happens if Newcastle don't get promoted? And you said, they will. They're going to yeah, they're gonna get promoted. And what stood out was your optimism. That's what they said to me, that John's optimism um, is just unbelievable. And that runs through the majority of Newcastle night supporters. There's always that optimism, oh, that hope. Totally. I mean, we have been browbeaten all our life um, in terms of Newcastle United. And we understand that. And we rebel against it. We don't like it. We rebel against it. We say enough's enough. But I, the one thing we don't do is jack in supporting the club because the club matters. It doesn't matter who the chairman is. It doesn't matter who the manager is. It doesn't matter if the centre forward is Jocelyn, Andy Carroll or Joe Linton. We will continue to support that club. And you know why? Because we always think tomorrow's another day and tomorrow the sun will be out 
when we go to bed tonight, it might be dark and gloomy, but when we wake up tomorrow, the sun will be out. And we can't abide fair weather fans. We can't abide the prone cocktail brigade that support Manchester United. They've got more supporters who don't live in Manchester because they just jumped on the bandwagon during Ferguson's era. If you're born in Newcastle, you support Newcastle. And, and that's the, the way it is. And if they're in the second division, you still support Newcastle. They're your club. And everybody that we see in Newcastle that's not good enough for Newcastle, whether that be Mike Ashley, the manager, or the centre forward, we know they're just passing through. We're not. We're here for the full ride. And that's why we're optimistic and stay with them. Couldn't put it better myself. If you're listening to this before Christmas and you do need a late Christmas present, I really do recommend heading over to wearethegeordies.com and ordering the movie. It is a really great watch covering that championship winning season under Rafa Benitez. Just going back to that Leeds game then, John, um, I, I assume you, you had joined, you'd come back at the start of that season. Yeah, I came back. I was asked to come back right at the end of the previous season. Right. The, that season was over, but almost immediately they, the guy had left and I was asked if I'd want to come back. And um, I gave them my conditions and couldn't wait to come back quick enough. And that's how the first job I did when I come back, before this season started, was cover the World Cup, um, which was up here with uh, North Korea that, that won right away through to England and then starting in the August with Newcastle United. So what had the season been like before that Boxing Day game? Had it just been an average or gone all right? What, what yeah, happened? I mean, we were never going to pull up any trees. Um, this was Joe Harvey who had brought us up and we had had one season up and about to start our second season up. It, it was a matter of let's consolidate, let's build. You know, Rome isn't built in a day and when Joe took over at Newcastle, they were in a dreadful mess. They were heading only one way and it was down. And he had to be courageous enough to clear out all players who, people like Alf McMichael, who had played with him in the 50s Cup sides, had to, he had to get rid of people like that, which was tough going. And then buy in players that were good enough to get them out of the second division, which was this, the, the side we talked about with um, Hilly and Ron McGarry. And then he had to build up a side that was good enough not only to keep us in the first division, but make some sort of impact, which is what they did with winning the European. And then rebuild it all again, because that side, you can't keep the same lot going all the time, bring in the Supermax and everything to get the 74 um, side. So we looked at that side, and we were miles away from being... Leeds United. Mm. My, the difference was chalk and cheese. Yet by 68-69, while Leeds were still much better than us, Leeds were knocked out home and away in the first cup by Uspestoza, the same Leeds side, and we beat Uspestoza home and away. So the gap had been dramatically closed. What was Joe like at Christmas? Because some, you know, some managers will, you know, get maybe hamper gifts or, or just wish Merry Christmas. What was what was Joe like when it came to Christmas? What was he like with the journalists? Oh, I mean, he, he, he had a great relationship with everybody. He just adored football. Um, and if you were fair to him as a journalist, you were fine. I mean, 
I, I got on terrific with Joe and I got a load of exclusives from Joe because in those days you operated not in press conferences like today, you operated one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. They didn't really have press conferences, even after a game. You just try to grab them when you, you know, you didn't have the sit-down press conference that you have now. Um, but I wouldn't have been doing my job right if I didn't fall out with Joe because my job was to, to get things for the Chronicle and his job was occasionally to stop you getting things for the Chronicle. But as, as um, Stan Anderson had said about him, he, w he never bore grudges. He didn't. Joe would explode and be fearsome, uh, w whether it was with a player, whether it was with the chairman of the club or a hack. But then, having had his say, it was forgotten about. Were the Christmas parties back in that day like the way? I mean, we've all heard the stories of like Secure and Diane Code dressing yeah. up as Batman and Robin and Gay crashing to Bobby's dinner at uh, yeah. St. James Park, that Christmas dinner debacle. I know they obviously they go out now and fancy dress still. I mean, they, they won't this year. And we've heard about them cancelling Christmas parties when they've gone on a bad run of form. That's actually happened quite often over recent years because they've, they've hit a poor run of form. What was it like back then? Every day was party day apart from match day. <laughs> um, they didn't have Christmas parties in the way you're talking about, yeah. an organised party given by the club. But if you can imagine with... Um, Supermac around and a, and a few of the players before Supermac and uh, Jinky Smith and later on uh, McQuinn and everybody like that. Uh, we had an awful lot of parties. We didn't just have one, we had a lot. But I hasten to add, they were always at the right time. I'm not putting those guys down mm. in no way before a game or anything was that much put at risk at all. They were very, very professional. But in the middle of the week or beginning of a week, would have a fun time. And it, was, it wasn't done in secret, it was done in public. Mm. We, we went to a nightclub or we went to a restaurant and were in full view of everybody else, but we knew how to enjoy ourselves, and um, we did exactly that. Dear listeners, get your pound coin ready because it's time for one of our favourite phrases. John, you went along just to be social. Of course, I, I, I think it's very necessary to, to, to blend into whatever. I mean, if they'd all been a load of Cliff Richards, I would have been Cliff. No, I wouldn't have been Cliff Richard. I would have given up being a journalist. Uh, but no, um, there were wonderful times because the camaraderie, you got to know people. You got stories at the right time, not the wrong time. You built up trust because they learned that they could trust you, or they learned they couldn't, and that certainly happened as well. In the were extra special time, and you, you got close, and that's why I love now to be able to sit down with yourself in a Gibbo's corner and tell loads of stories about the good days, because there were stories to be told. You, you were one of the, the clan. You, know, you were one of the rat pack. You weren't outside looking in. Mm. And we are actually filming this in the corner of the pub, which has been renamed Gibbo's Corner, so <laughs> it's another, th uh, it's an early Christmas present for John. Let's go on to the last game. Then it's a game that I can remember. Newcastle defeated four three down at Old Trafford, and on the notes I've just got written down Alex Ferguson's rant. Yeah. From memory, I'm going to say that's the the wee club quote. Is it? Is it when he called Newcastle United a wee club? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And um, the rant was actually. 
during the match and I'm thinking you're right you called Newcastle oh, a weak club side story right oh, there, there was a rant during the game the typical you know I mean Fergie was playing Scrooge he, he, I mean he was terrific he was Scrooge I mean he could have played the part of Scrooge I mean his face in a match day was like a well smacked backside I mean he always looked red and about to explode one of the most don't get me wrong one of the most wonderful managers this game has ever 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 had but when he, you were playing against him, you detested him because he tried to run the show and he tried to influence the show. And as he got bigger and won more titles and won European titles, he did run the show. He did influence the officials. Um, he was not on the field, but he was the biggest influence on a game was him. Uh, you know, you had the famous Fergie time when he kept looking at his watch when they were w winning near the end because he wanted the whistle blown, etc., etc. And this match was heartache because it was a match Newcastle ought to have won uh, and almost did win. Um, but it sticks out in my memory not because we were beaten but because it told you everything about Alex Ferguson. And because so much happened, there were seven goals, I've got it, uh, written down here to make certain we've got it right. It, Paul Hugh was the manager of Newcastle at, at that time. It was uh, Boxing Day 2012. Uh, by less than half an hour gone, we were 2-1 up. Um, and this was the goal that changed everything in that match. Danny Simpson, who, who had played Man United and went on and won at Leicester, as you well know, won a title, went down the right into the penalty area, knocked the ball across the goal. Johnny Evans went forward with with Cissé and the ball ended up in the net. It was an own goal by Johnny Evans. Uh, there was no appeals at all from Manchester United in anything wrong with it for offside, uh, but the, the home defenders were arguing amongst themselves whose fault was it, etc., etc., all of a sudden, the linesman's flag on the far side was put up indicating an offside. Uh, immediately, you got Pardew going bananas on the touchline, Danny Simpson running over to the linesman, having a dip, etc., etc. The referee was Mike Dean. Uh, he went over, spoke to his assistants, and, but gave the goal. And the reason for giving the goal was that it wasn't Cissé that got the last touch, to score who would have been offside it was Johnny Evans before the ball got to Cissé that diverted into his own net so Cissé behind him wasn't interfering with play it didn't matter that he was offside it was an own goal and the goal was given uh, off time come with Newcastle 2-1 down and of course uh, Lord Ferguson was going absolutely ballistic as he whipped down the tunnel etc etc by the time we come out for the second half he was still at it and he started emerged from the tunnel he started on the fourth official he started with the linesman that was on his side now berating him to such an extent that the start of the second half was delayed while Ferguson had his run can you believe that the referee delayed the start of the second half till Ferguson had said his piece. He ought to have gone across, booked Ferguson and sent him up to the stand, out of the way. But he didn't.
because it was Alec Ferguson. Now, by now, the, the linesman, the fourth official did nothing to help the situation. By now, the linesman on Ferguson's side is so terrified that, that, that Alec might take the flag off him and put it where the sun doesn't shine, that he was intimidated for the rest of the second half. And the feeling afterwards, certainly with, uh, with Pardew and the Newcastle players, was that the referee was intimidated by Ferguson and of course we went on to lose the match uh, just to run about how it had gone we went 1-0 up in 4 minutes through Perch remember the fullback? Uh, then they equalised through Johnny Evans 25 minutes, 28 minutes Johnny Evans put in his net uh, Ever made it 2-2 58 minutes we went ahead again uh, after that through Cissé in 68 minutes so we'd been leading a couple of times Van Persie equalised in 71 and then right at the death at the 90th minute in Fergie time Hernandez scored and we lost 4-3 Mr Hernandez aye who tended to do that I first? think that's maybe where the I've got, I have got this fear of certain players um, and Hernandez was always one when you saw him come off the bench against Newcastle I just oh. thought he's going to score yeah always did and Newcastle were out on the feet by the time he, he got mm. that goal and that was the most cruel result because we led and then yeah. led again to lead so many times and then to, and, to and then away. lose with the last kick and have Ferguson so influence mm. the game which he was absolutely great at um, and of course, everybody in the country loves him now because he is the great character. He won everything that was possible to win. But believe you me, when he was in that hot seat at Manchester United, he was detested by the fans of every other club that played Manchester United because he did influence officials mm. absolutely hugely, whether it was for the final whistle, whether it was for decisions that were being made. And that match told us everything. You've got to bear in mind that when he came out at the beginning of the second half and actually delayed the kickoff while he was berating these people, this was half an hour after the goal Newcastle scored that he was chuntering on about. Now, it was deliberate. It wasn't in the heat of the moment. He's had half an hour to cool down. It wasn't him going berserk in the heat of the moment as the goal scored. Half an hour later, he's deliberately getting in the ear of every official to say we'll not get a bad decision against us in the second half, not after this one. And and that was the way it was. Just briefly then, his accusations of Newcastle being a wee club. A weak? A wee club. So he said oh. he said him a, Newcastle's a wee club. Aye, aye. He loved he, he, he loved winding people up like that, like uh, Mourinho does now. Privately, he had a huge uh, respect for Newcastle United, mainly because of the fans. Hmm. And Actually, and I don't know who, when they didn't have a job at the time, but at the time when we had the John Hall-Freddie Shepherd combo running Newcastle United, which was really, while Freddie ran it after John left, he was never the owner. It, he ran it with the permission of the Halls, who were still the major shareholders. Ferguson was approached privately about coming to Newcastle United and did consider it because of the fan base the had at the time this was when Newcastle 
entertainers when mm. they bought everybody ending up with a world record for Shearer um, and tried to sign George Weir and Baggio from uh, Italy when they signed Aspria. They didn't know the definition of you can't get that guy. They, they say, oh, well, we'll test it. They owned his, the Falcons at the time and Newcastle Falcons as well. And they were the, after professional rugby was launched in the 90s, they were the first people to sign a player for a million pounds and they signed Twigamala. Mm. And that was the Newcastle's thinking at the time. And they did unofficially directly to Ferguson a legal approach. Isn't that asked if you'd be interested in coming to Newcastle? And he did think about it. That's the respect he had for a wee club. Imagine that. Well, just to finish this Christmas special then, John, let's give our listeners and our viewers a festive message. Every year you do give, uh, you, you film a little video for our website and we put yep. it out and it is Gibbo's Christmas message. So th- this year, and it has been, you know, a turbulent one for Newcastle fans on and off the pitch, but in general for society with a COVID pandemic. Yes, it, it's been a horrible, horrible year, 2020. Um, and COVID has changed so much. It's locked fans out of the, the beloved cathedral on the hill. Uh, it has done so much to dampen our spirits as though we hadn't enough. We had a failed takeover that we thought was going to u- lead us into utopia and might well yet, um, or we certainly think so, because our, our cup's always half full, not half empty. Uh, and all I would say to Newcastle fans, and I've said it for an awful long time, and it's going to come right one day, is that keep the faith. We might have been locked out of St James's Park this year. We might have seen a takeover which we'd fantasise about collapse, but times can only get better. Newcastle United will have a new owner in due course. Newcastle United will win something in due course. There's absolutely no question about that, although it's 55 domestically and 69 for anything whatsoever. We will win again. And I don't even have to say to Newcastle fans, keep the faith, because they're brilliant at that, because that is what we're all about. Merry Christmas to every one of you, and next year, see you back in St James's Park, and see you when we're climbing a ladder instead of walking down it. God bless you. Have a lovely Christmas. Happy New Year.